Mark 8, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was about to head out the door of the office to meet with someone, uh, but it was someone that I didn't actually know. Uh, it was uh, a connection that Graham had made, a friend of his. He said, you guys should get together for coffee sometime. And as I was leaving, I thought, well, I have no idea what this person looks like. So I asked Graham. I said, well, I'm going to show up at City Cafe and, and look around. I, give me an idea. Like, what am I looking for? And he said, well, he said, he has been to Elevation before, so he'll recognize you. But if for some reason, just look for someone with a, like a Mennonite-ish beard. And so I'm like, perfect. So I got the image in my mind of who I'm looking for when I walk in there. Now there was a problem, because I walked in, and I looked to the right, and there was no one with any kind of a beard, and then I looked to the left, and I saw this guy. Now, not a Mennonite-ish beard, more of a hipster beard, but I thought, maybe Graham doesn't know the difference. So I gave um, the quarter nod, you know, where you're kind of like... <laughs> like, you don't want to make it like, hey. So you just give a little bit of a, huh. So it's, if that is the right person, they're going to be like, yeah, he gets me, you know. Um, but if it's not, he's just like, whatever, that guy's got a kink in his neck, whatever. <laughs> so I give the little quarter nod, and he does the same thing back. Well, he, he lifts like the, fi the quarter finger. He's like, eh, like a little thing. And he looked kind of familiar to me. I'm thinking, well, maybe that's the guy. But then I, I glance to the left, and there's another guy, also with a beard. Like neither of these ones, though. And he kind of waves. And I'm like, oh, this is actually the person I'm supposed to meet with. So anyways, it ended up working out fine, and I sat down and chatted with this t total stranger for like two hours. Never met him before. And we sat down and had this conversation for two hours. It was fantastic. And just to finish the early part of the story, um, I actually did know the guy with the hipster beard, and we connected afterwards as well. But I was thinking about how I just sat down with this guy, and it's like, it's this awkward kind of moment of silence. It's like, hey, the weather outside, you know, you do that. And I was just like, tell me your story, right? And then he said the same thing when he was done, like, tell me your story. And I was thinking about when you just, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. It happens to me more frequently than most people. But if you've ever had the experience of just sitting down with someone that you've never met before, how does that conversation start? How do you introduce yourself? How do you tell your story? Do you start at the beginning and say, well, on whatever date, you know, I was born and entered into the world? And do you begin there? But probably not. Most likely you start with something like, 
well, I graduated from such and such a university. Or maybe you say, well, I'm married and I have a child or whatever. Or maybe you say, you know, I work at so-and-so and this is my position. Like, most of the time when we talk about our own stories, introducing ourselves to someone, we just start, like, in the middle. We're like, no one cares about all the background. They want to hear about, like, who I am now and what I'm up to, so I'm just going to start right here in the middle of the story. All of this despite the many decades, for some of you, many decades, that have shaped you up until this moment. But we just start somewhere in the middle. Well, this month, the season of Advent, we're celebrating Jesus' birth, but our reading today, it takes place some point three decades after his birth, because this is how Mark starts his gospel. While Jesus was certainly shaped and formed by those 30 years that had passed by, they are gently set aside. And skipping entirely over the birth, childhood, and early adult years of Jesus' life, Mark's gospel begins on the banks of the Jordan River, and he doesn't even start with Jesus. Contemporary author Yuval Noah Harari says that telling effective stories is not easy. The difficulty lies not in telling the story, but in convincing everyone else to believe it. And I think for the gospel writers, which is who we're listening to during the season of Advent, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, one per week, listening to how they introduce Jesus, they weren't setting out to recall every detail of Jesus' life, Jesus' life, and that's why those first 30 years are largely absent. But they were set out to reveal who he was. And at the end of John's gospel, which Graham will be talking to us about in a couple of weeks from now, he kind of summarizes this way. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. He's been writing for 20 chapters here, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There it is. That's what they're after. That's why they're writing these stories, these gospels that are in the beginning of our New Testament, not to give us a, an accurate biography of their entire past, but to tell us about the saving good news. The gospels weren't written to satisfy our curiosity for detail, but to change our lives. And so Mark begins his account with the same language that John used to end his. Notice the similarity. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is what these authors were trying to get across to everyone. That Jesus is the answer to the longing of God's people, and he is the Son of God. Now, Mark is widely accepted as the earliest gospel, which may confuse you. Because if you just kind of open the beginning of the New Testament, there's some Bibles in the pews in front of you, or if you open your Bible app, the first one listed is Matthew. And for a long time, uh, when the Bible kind of order was put together, people assumed that Matthew was the earliest one written. They thought that Mark was probably just summarizing. It's quite short. It's a lot shorter than Matthew. And they thought, well, Mark is probably just summarizing what Matthew had already written and what Luke had already written. But as scholarship kind of increased over time, people realized, no, actually, Mark is the earliest one. And Matthew and Luke, they kind of built their stories off. They're like, Mark, that was great, but you forgot this story. How could you leave this one out? And they were kind of adding into it and saying, like, we got to tell the whole story of Jesus here. But Mark is the earliest of the gospel. And we're not actually even positive that Mark is the author. And this is something that's also a little unique about this. The tradition says that John Mark, a, a companion of the apostle Peter, is the author of this gospel. But he doesn't actually spell it out at the beginning. He just dives right into the story. He doesn't introduce himself like others do. But the theme of this gospel is, without a doubt, um, the good news. 
The Greek word, which is actually kind of the second word in the Greek in the gospel, is the evangelion, the gospel as it's often um, translated, or the good news. This is the theme. Mark uses this word more often than any other New Testament writer aside from Paul, and he's trying to make a point. I am announcing good news. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and he uses this language of good news repeatedly, time and time again. But before Mark explains the good news of Jesus, he introduces us to John the Baptist. Now, I was looking earlier this week for some examples of awkward nativity scenes, and I had one that I was going to show you, but then actually just last night, our family got together with another family for dinner, and we went for a walk through Waterloo Park, and I found an even better one. So I stopped and took a picture. There's this beautiful nativity set. It is carved out of olive wood, and it was carved by Christian Palestinian shepherds in Bethlehem. Like, how much better does a nativity scene get than that? It's this beautiful set, and as you can see, you know, all the characters are there, you know, Jesus in the middle, and Mary and Joseph and the rest, and I was like, what a beautiful thing to have displayed right here in our city center. But if you zoom out a little bit, the scene gets a little weird. So I took another picture. Now, I don't know how clearly you can see this, but the next slide I'm circling, there is a large troll-like figure holding a violin towering over the nativity scene. I'm like, who's that? How does he fit into this? This is weird. And that's kind of how I feel about the readings in the season of Advent. Because it's like, we want to get to Jesus. We want to get to this story of the shepherds and, and the angels and Mary and Joseph and the baby and the rest of it. And all of a sudden, it's John the Baptist. And he's like this awkward guy standing on the end of the nativity scene. Every Advent, he's there. He's like, look at me. I eat locusts. He's like, why are we talking about John the Baptist? Well, let's find out. Mark begins his gospel. He says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. John was paving the way for the Messiah, the promised deliverer of the Jewish nation. And as we sang earlier, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. We sing this song of of longing, of just desperation. Is God going to come? And for centuries, the Jewish people had been waiting for deliverance from their oppressors. But Jesus knew only too well that he was not at all what they had in mind. And for that reason, he held his cards close. And Mark depicts this. And if we pay close attention to what unfolds in the chapters that follow, we see that Mark is trying to demonstrate how Jesus set up his ministry in the public eye. In Mark chapter 1 alone, if you're like, I don't have time to read the whole thing, read chapter 1, and you, it becomes very clear that Jesus is trying to do something. So the first story that we, that we run into in Mark chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, uh, Jesus runs into a, a man who is possessed by this impure, this evil spirit, and uh, this spirit kind of lashes out at him and says to Jesus, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, you'd think at that point that Jesus would be like, well, that was easy, and he would just say, you're right, I'm the Holy One of God. All of you heard it. But what does he say instead? Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. So here's the Spirit kind of says, you are the Holy One of God, which is kind of the the grand finale of Jesus' whole arrival and the whole point of him being here to reveal who he was. But instead he says, be quiet, sternly. He's upset by this. Now, in chapter 1, three more different instances where Jesus seems to have no interest in 
the whole crowd's knowing who he was. In chapter 1, Mark has Jesus getting up very early in the morning to sneak away from the crowds. Then he has him telling a man that he had just healed, see that you don't tell this to anyone. And then he has them, has Jesus avoiding towns altogether, instead staying outside in lonely places. All of this in chapter 1. Four different stories where Jesus is, has opportunity to go out and shout from the mountaintops who he is, and he decides instead to be quiet, to keep to himself. Shh, don't tell anyone about this. And yet, as chapter 1 ends, the people still came to him from everywhere. I don't know if you're doing uh, any online shopping this time of year. Uh, evidently, people in my family are, because there are deliveries on my doorstep every day. Boxes, random boxes from all these different companies showing up at my door. But one of the funny things about online shopping, if you share a computer with people, is you know where people have been shopping, right? Thanks to like online advertising algorithms, it's like whenever, whatever shot, site I'm on, I'm like, oh, let's see the score in the hockey game. It's like, oh, apparently someone was on that website shopping. Apparently that was in someone's shopping cart. It's like they just pop up all over the place. So you got to be careful with that, right? You got to be careful. It's hard to keep shopping a secret. Well, why would Jesus keep this a secret? Why would Jesus keep his identity a secret? Why would he tell people, be quiet? Why would he do this? If he brought such good news, why be secretive about it? Well, Mark quotes from the beginning of what scholars refer to as Second Isaiah. Uh, the passage that he quotes from, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Chapters 1 to 39 are, are pretty uniform. There's a message, it's this dire warning against things are going to go bad. You look out, people, like God is coming after you kind of thing. And then chapter 40, the tone changes, the style of the writing changes, and, and scholars believe that this is a different author who is continuing Isaiah's words here. And I want to read the, the full passage that Mark was quoting from, Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. So after all of these chapters of dire warning, um, there's this, uh, it kind of, 39 ends in this flurry, and then chapter 40 begins, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As one commentator writes, the prophet's message is that in spite of and in the midst of human misery, the Lord continues to be the God who speaks and acts. 39 chapters of warning, the people let off into bondage, having their city taken over, but then this reminder that God is living and active. And Mark calls his readers' attention right from the very beginning to this beloved and this hopeful passage. Get ready. God is about to do something great in the world right in your midst. Get ready. Because you don't like being caught off guard. This time of year is a time where a lot of people will host friends and family and neighbors in your home. And no one likes to have unexpected guests show up at your door. And you're totally unprepared. Like, what? I didn't invite you. What are you doing in my house? No one likes that. No one likes the person who shows up in the middle of the day when you're in your pajamas and you haven't even brushed your teeth at two in the afternoon. No, you like to be ready so you can prepare and you can light a candle and you can hang the wreath and you can get the music playing in the background and you open the door and everything is just wonderful. That's how we want to welcome people into our homes, right? You want some advance notice. So that's what John the Baptist is doing. He's saying, okay, guys, I'm giving you some notice. Someone is coming. 
The one that you've been waiting for, he is about to come. So hang the wreath, put the music on, brush your teeth. It's time to get ready. And so, in light of this reminder of this passage from Isaiah, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, a life of faith would be so much easier to swallow if all we had to do was sit back and watch God take action. That he would just sweep in, right the wrongs of the world, set us up for success. But instead, we're invited to take action. I mean, that's what the Jewish people were longing for. Isn't that what the Messiah would do? He'd come in, all the problems in their lives would disappear because he would sit on the throne, he would become this earthly king, he would wipe out all the people who were oppressing them. They wouldn't have to do anything. They would have this wonderful king, Messiah, who was doing it. Well, four verses into this good news story, Mark tells us that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but any, for me, any talk about sin sounds more like bad news. In the very beginning, this is the story about good news, so repent of your sin. It's like this interaction I had last week um, as a trillium service was ending, and we, I was just milling around the lobby. There was a, an older woman in the lobby, and she was kind of hunched over a little bit, and she had a kerchief on her hat and on her head, and, and she was walking with a cane. So I went and I held the door open for her, and I said, "Enjoy the mild weather out there today." She looks at me and says, "Do you want cancer?" I didn't say anything because you don't say anything in response to that. And she said, "I've got some right here in my leg," and off she went. I was like, "Well, that was strange." Like. How do you start a conversation on such a negative tone? I said something about, you know, I'm sorry for you, or I hope you have a better day, or something. But it's like the conversation started off so negative. Why would Mark start this conversation off so negative? Why would he say, like, talk about John the Baptist, all right, I'm here to prepare this way, and the first thing I'm going to talk about is how messed up you are. The first thing I'm going to tell you is you need to get your life straightened out, all right? So it's not about hanging wreaths or playing music or brushing your teeth. It's about admitting that your life is a mess and you've got to get it straightened out. So come forward and do that in front of everyone. Bad news about sin and repentance, maybe, but coupled with the really good news of forgiveness and mercy. Yes, Jesus came to bring freedom, which is what the Jewish people had been expecting for a long time, but a different kind of freedom than they expected. The reason he was so secretive is that he didn't want people getting the wrong idea. He didn't want people following him for the wrong reasons, which they eventually did despite all of his best efforts. But he didn't want people coming and saying, this is the one who will be our military ruler. This is the one who will give us prosperity and success. This is the one who's going to start a war. He's like, I don't want you gathering around me. There are enough people trying to gather little groups around them and start insurrections here. I don't want to be one of them. So let's start this thing slowly. Well, let's start it off with a costly message. Make straight paths for him. John was saying you need to prepare yourselves for something totally new. You need to prepare the way that you're thinking about this whole Messiah picture. But how crooked are our paths now? What exactly does straightening them involve? Well, apparently for the people around the Jordan River, they all understood this message. Mark says that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, I don't want to call Mark a liar, but he might have been exaggerated a little bit here. Like, the entire city, the entire city is like, all right, we got to confess our sins in public. I'm up for that. But obviously, a lot of people did to be able to say that. The entire Judean countryside 
And all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So just picture this. Like this large group of people, this large percentage of people from the city are lining up to publicly announce that they are sinners, to list their shortcomings and be washed in this river as a sign that their lives were starting again. I'm reading this novel right now, and the author, it's autobiographical, and he's talking about this time where he was at a dinner party, and there was maybe, I think, eight people, eight or ten people gathered around, and, and they were talking, and they went through the small talk, and as the night went on, eventually, someone asked a question that, that opened the conversation up and, and took it to a new place. And for pages, he goes on about how one person after the other started answering the question, how your life has not worked out the way you thought it would. And one person after another around that living room starts saying, I used to be this, but then this happened, and I'm not what I used to be. Oh, yeah? Well, in my life, I made this mistake, and then this happened, and then my life started spiraling. Oh, yeah? Well, check out my life. I used to have this, and now I don't have any of that. Oh, yeah, well, I used to be famous, and people used to know me, and now nobody does. One after the next, people telling these stories of their lives unraveling. He refers, the author refers to this this German word, and I will butcher it, um, Erzalnacht, which he says is used to describe this experience, a night when people open up, and everyone contributes a story. You go around the room and everyone tells a story. And in this case, he said, that's what it was like. It was like everyone was telling a story, but in this case, it was everyone telling a story about how their lives had fallen so short. During Advent, we've chosen a different uh, call to worship, but I want to draw our attention to the way that we usually gather when we gather as a community. We use a phrase in our call to worship as part of a prayer. It says, forgive us for the ways we have put other things before you this week. And I thought it was fitting that even though that phrase was absent as Helen was leading us into sharing communion together, we pray this prayer of confession. This idea that part of what it means when we gather is we gather because we have this need to confess. Which is to say that we need a place where we can admit that we're not living up to the high hopes that we had for our lives. That we are harboring secrets and that we're tired of the shame they create in us. That we don't have the foggiest what we're doing most days. That most of the things we long for have nothing to do with Jesus or his vision for our world. That we prefer taking the easy way out whenever we can find it. A place where we can admit that we're tired, that we're lonely, and that we're losing hope. And I think the need to confess is at least partly what is involved in preparing the way for the Lord. It's not like, take up your arms, he's about to lead us out. It's, let down your guard. Confess you've fallen short. Get yourself ready, because this Messiah is different. A life of faith demands that we acknowledge our shortcomings, and that we do so publicly, as illustrated by the crowds coming forward for baptism. Eugene Peterson writes of this, rite of passage. When we come up dripping out of the waters of baptism and look around, we observe to our surprise that the community of the baptized is made up of people just like us. Unfinished, immature, neurotic, stumbling, 
singing out of tune much of the time. Because, of course, baptism isn't a one-shot deal. Instead, it provides a template for our life. And so as John is calling people forward, he, he wasn't just saying, come and get in the water and then you'll be ready. He's saying, take on this pattern of life, of confessing your shortcomings, of beginning a new life, and let this be the new pattern of your life day in and day out. It's time for this self-directed life of mine to come to an end and for a new life to begin. And so when we gather, we confess that we've fallen short, and we invite God, have mercy on us, and renew our faith this morning. If it's good news that we're invited to confess our sins, then it's infinitely better news that God has announced in advance that he will, in fact, have mercy on us and forgive us. The confession and repentance that God called people to, that John called people to, wasn't to shame them or to beat them down, but to prepare them to receive a Messiah who would suffer alongside of them. And it's with this in mind that we can sing, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Close with a little bit of a story I read in the news last week. I thought this was pretty profound. It's a story of a Dutch church that is in the middle of holding an 800-hour church service to save a family and their congregation from deportation. You see, in their country, there's a rule that police cannot enter a church building while a church service is taking place. And so they said, ah, we can get around that one. And so the pastor said, I had co copied and pasted the liturgies of the last 10 years into one huge document, and we just sang and prayed through that, and then other pastors were found and they took over. And so for 800 hours, they're just like, well, police aren't going to get this family. We can just do this all year long. It's pretty cool. I was reminded of a family in our own community, and I thought, uh, Javier and Jamila, years ago, and I thought, man, I wish we had a law like that. You know, we could have done something. Because the reality is, you would do anything to save the people you love. When we think about the good news, which is how Mark starts off this story of his, this is the good news. When we think about it, we, we think about the, the statement that John made in, in his gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, when you love someone, you're willing to do anything. If you're a church, maybe you're willing to have an 800-hour-long service to save the people you love. If you're God, maybe you're willing to let your son go for the sake of the people you love. Mark skips over a lot of the detail at the start of his gospel. It's true. But he starts where everyone of us needs to start, with an invitation to prepare the way for the Lord. So here's the thing about Advent. Here's the thing about this Christmas story that we tell every year. John Steinbeck writes, No story has power, nor will it last, unless we feel in ourselves that it is true and true of us. And so John's invitation to prepare the way for the Lord was not just for people who lived 2,000 years ago, but it's for us. Confess, repent, prepare the way for the Lord. He's coming. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'd like to close with an admonition that comes from an old hymn, Comfort, Comfort Ye, My People, based on Isaiah 40, and then we'll pray before we head to our discussion. So the admonition is this, Make ye straight 
what long was crooked. Make the rougher places plain. Let your hearts be true and humble as befits his holy reign. God, we want to take up the challenge of this message that was promised in Isaiah, that was proclaimed at the beginning of Mark, that John shouted out, and we want to follow in the way of the people who were around the Judean countryside and all through the city of Jerusalem. We want to follow their way of confessing that we fall short, of repenting, which is to say changing our mind, turning around, moving in a different direction, and that we want to do all of this to get ourselves ready for your arrival. Specifically at this time of year, before we can get into all the celebration of your birth and everything that that means, help us to prepare our hearts. Receive our, our words of confession, God. Have mercy on us. Forgive us. And get us ready to be able to truly welcome you this Christmas. In Christ's name, amen.